This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Well, good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you so much for being with us on this Thursday evening. It is a pleasure to be with you as always, however you're choosing to join us, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Twitch, Periscope, or if you're listening to us on the terrestrial signal, we certainly appreciate you making us a part of your day. So we have changed up the format a little bit for those of you who are joining into the program. We used to do a coronavirus update every day. We decided last week that the numbers were coming in and they were all showing pretty much the same thing. I was just repeating myself a lot by doing a daily update. And so what I've decided to do is move to a weekly update. We do have a short coronavirus update just to keep you aware of the situation, let you know exactly what is going on with the coronavirus numbers here in the state of Alabama. And then we're going to move on to other news because this is still important and it is still something that's going on. I know that if you're somebody that watches the news a lot, it feels like, The coronavirus was the only story for like two months, and then all of a sudden it became a non-issue basically overnight with all the protests. But it is still something that is going on, and so we'll go ahead and look at the latest data from the Alabama Department of Public Health. Now you can see there uh, that we have uh, 22,476 confirmed cases here in the Yellowhammer State, 278,455 that have been tested. 750 have lost their de- uh, lost their lives to COVID-19 and 2165 hospitalizations have taken place here in Alabama and you'll also notice that we have about 13,000 presumed recoveries and that is something that is updated again I'm not really 100% sure how they tally that I assume that what they do is they just take out the number of people that we have have died and then go back to the 14-day average of the confirmed cases and subtract everybody that died, which would mean everybody else would be presumed okay 14 days in the past because that's the incubation period. I'm guessing that's how they calculate that. I don't know for sure. But if I had to to take a, a swing in the dark there, that would be about what I would guess. By the way, that does bring the fatality rate down to thirty. Uh, sorry, 3.33. Thank goodness it's not 33. That that would exponentially increase the death rate that we have. But uh, the fatality rate, of course, significantly higher than what it probably actually is because a lot of doctors and a lot of professionals uh, are now presuming that based on this, that the real death rate, the the real fatality rate of COVID-19 is probably somewhere in the ballpark of 0.2 to 0.6. And Alabama's is uh, 3.33. There's no way that that is actually representative of what the the fatality rate actually is. It's probably just because there are a whole bunch of people that we don't know that had the the virus that actually do. Uh, There's going to be an awful lot of that that's revealed in things like antibody testing. But as of right now, it is 3.33. Which, by the way, if you have been following the show and, and watching our coronavirus updates... You know that there were times that the fatality rate inched on up into the fours, fives, and I believe we got darn close to, if not actually at, about 6% fatality at one point. So 3.3 is actually really good, and that's because we've 
We've done increases in testing. We have a better idea of exactly who has this thing, and our death rate has also been going down in conjunction with all of that. So 3.33 is actually making a significant amount of progress if you're looking at where we started off here in Alabama. Now, let's go ahead and pull up the new coronavirus cases you can see on the graph here. So you'll notice that today, today in particular, is a really big spike. They've been up overall in the past seven days. We've had a increase overall over the, the this week, and we'll talk about that in a second. But today especially was a very, very big spike. In fact, uh, you may notice there that we were just barely floating or floating just above 800 new cases today. So that's the biggest day that we've had by far. And this is something that I've been saying for a while now that is to be expected, that when people are out and about, they're moving around, they're getting back to their daily lives, we are going to see an increase in cases. As long as that does not translate into an increase in deaths and an increase in hospitalizations, that's a very good thing. Because it means we get that much closer to herd immunity. It means that we are far more likely to have a, a good grip on exactly how many people are actually getting this thing. Because the more survivors that we have of this thing that have actually had the virus, gone through it, they've created antibodies in their bodies and now have something of an immunity, that's going to make it that much better. A lot of the concerns that, that doctors on uh, that have, have sort of voiced concerns about this on is that the second wave could theoretically be much worse because not enough people got the virus and, and built up an immunity beforehand. Whether or not they agreed with you know the shutdowns or any of that stuff, they're saying, regardless of how you felt about that, regardless of your policy stance on that, that was a legitimate concern. Even if you thought that the shutdowns didn't go far enough and that we, they should have shut down for longer and shut down even more things, even if you were in that camp, you certainly would look at it and say, but the unfortunate side effect of that is it's going to make the second wave even harder to control because people don't have that immunity. If we wind up hedging ourselves a little bit and, and get just a significant portion, it doesn't even have to be a majority, but a significant portion of the population more or less immune to this thing in the second go-round, which is at least speculated that that could happen in the near future, if that does take place, then this is going to be something that goes a long way in protecting the citizens of Alabama by getting closer to herd immunity. So that actually is a very good thing. Let's go ahead and look at the seven-day averages. So the seven-day average for this week, the past seven days, 530 new cases per day. Yowza! I mean, you saw the chart there. That is a significant increase. But like I said, the increase in cases could actually be a good thing as long as it doesn't translate into an increase in deaths. The seven-day average for the previous week had actually been down, you may recall. And so we've actually springboard back up and, and a little bit more because we had a, a decrease in 81 cases per day comparing last week to the week before. Now this week, uh, looking at the previous seven days, we had an average of 351 new cases a day, which means in seven days we have increased the amount of coronavirus cases by 179 cases per day. That's a pretty big leap, and that's definitely something that you, you need to be monitoring, you need to be aware of, and that's another thing that indicates to people, look, this is no time to assume that everything is behind us and we don't have to worry about it. 
I'm not one that is in favor of continuing to keep the entire state shut down. I've, I've never been in favor of that, just from a libertarian standpoint. But regardless of how you feel about that, you need to be aware that, hey, now's not the time to just go back to doing everything business as normal. Sure, go to work, uh, you know, get more or less back to your daily routine, but continue to take precautions. Continue to wear a mask when you're in close proximity with someone indoors. Continue to be just a, a little bit standoffish on things like, uh, you know, maybe don't expose yourself constantly to groups of large people, that kind of thing. Uh, make sure to wash your hands, so on and so forth. All those common sense things that we all know are really good for us anyway, whether there's a pandemic going on or not. And so uh, just something to keep in mind, the 21-day averages are really interesting. And I actually moved, you may recall, that I had been doing 14-day averages because that was the incubation period. I'm moving to 21-day averages because there has been so much debate on the shutdown and whether or not we should continue to shut down or reinstate a shutdown uh, there's other states that haven't lifted any of the shutdown measures. And so to give us a good comparison about what we looked down pre-shutdown and post-shutdown, I extended it to 21 days so we can look at the 21 days since the shutdown was loosened. You know, the, the stay-at-home orders, the new ones by Governor Ivey were issued. That was 21 days ago. And so if we look at the previous 21 days and then the 21 days before the shutdown, we get a much better idea of how effective the government shutdown was. Full Full disclosure... I have said and, and still believe and have said this for a long time that the shutdown really officially ended about two to three weeks before Governor Ivey loosened the restrictions because people were already getting back to their normal routines. They were already doing what they normally do. They had already started doing that regardless of what Co Governor Ivey thought, regardless of what the state told them that they had to do. They were already getting back to life as normal before that shutdown. So take these numbers with a grain of salt. As I have always contended, the shutdown officially ended about two weeks before, or the, the shutdown really ended about two weeks before it officially ended. But these are the numbers since it officially ended. So the 21-day average for the previous three weeks, 437. So that's since the shutdown officially ended. 437. The previous 21-day period before that, 299. So what does that mean? That means on average, since the shutdown ended, we have increased the number of cases by 138 per day. That should come as a surprise to no one. Like I said a few minutes ago, when you open up the floodgates, then of course people are going to move around and come in contact with people more often, and that is necessarily going to increase the infection rate. That is not a surprise to anyone. So the 21-day average shows that even though it's not a ridiculously absorbent amount compared to what we were having beforehand, 138 new cases a day more then we were having 21 days prior while the shutdown was still going on. That's nothing to sneeze at. You know, pun intended. Just pause for that joke. But anyway, all right, so let's go ahead and look at the testing in the state of Alabama. So you can see here, these are the numbers for the coronavirus test in Alabama. And we had a really, really big day this week, about four days ago. And then it kind of leveled off, and now we're up a little bit, but still... If you're looking at the overall amount of testing, this is a pretty good week for Alabama. We've had a, a pretty big increase in testing overall. So if you look at the seven-day averages this week, we did 6,209 tests per day on average. 
if you're looking at the week before, there was only 4,930, which means we increased the number of tests per day in one week by 1,279. That is a chunk. That's about a 40-ish, somewhere around there. I'm doing math in my head here. That's about a 40-ish percent increase. So that's a pretty big leap in, in one week. So kudos to the people running testing in the state of Alabama. Definitely some progress made here. And for the 21-day average, again, this 21-day period, the most recent one that we're in now, since the shutdown has ended, we have 5,025 per day. The previous 21-day period, 4,083. So that is an increase overall of almost 1,000, not quite. 942 per day in the most recent 21-day period. So that's definitely a good thing. Let's go ahead and look at hospitalizations. So you'll see hospitalizations here. And uh, they've kind of leveled off. Not really exploding, but also not down. They're, they're up a little bit, and you can see that there is a bump that especially comes near the end of the week this week. So hospitalizations, not a great week for hospitalizations overall, but let's see how they compare on the week-by-week week and the 21-day average. So you may recall that last week we did see an increase in hospitalizations. It was minuscule, but th there was a bump. So let's look at what we've got now. This week was pretty bad for hospitalizations. Our seven-day average was 34, and the seven-day average before that, 23. That's an increase of 11 new hospitalizations per day. Now, if we continue to go on the uptick for a significant amount of time, granted, we're pretty darn far away from where we would be to where we would be overflowing or need help from somewhere else or be overloading the system. So right now at the rate we're going, if we continued at this rate, it would be tough, but we certainly wouldn't get to the point to where we were running out. Remember that, and we did this analysis looking at the projections before all the shutdown started, that Alabama's capacity, if about half the uh, coronavirus patients needed to be hospitalized, which by the way, that, has, uh, that statistic has actually radically changed in the time since we've done that analysis, because if you're looking at 2,000 hospitalizations in this three-month period, and 22,000 confirmed cases, well, that makes a world of difference. Instead of about half of the coronavirus patients needing hospitalization, uh, we, we moved down to a much lower percentage. And of that much lower percentage, I imagine that what is happening too, because we were using UAB's data at the time, and, and granted it was the only data that they had, that roughly half of their patients needed ventilators, and so the magic number we were trying to stay under was about 1,600-ish coronavirus patients at one time. Well, we're not even close to that. In fact, overall hospitalizations in the entire three-month period are only 21,000 right now, which means that in the span of three months, and remember, this thing only has an incubation period of 14 days and to, as far as we know, there's nobody that has been experiencing symptoms for more than about 9, 10 days. They don't need hospitalization for weeks and weeks on end, which means the people that were hospitalized at the beginning of this thing, they've been recovered for a very long time now and, and have no need for hospital. So our overall hospitalization in a three-month period 
is just barely over what we needed uh, to stay under for hospitalizations for the for a single period in time. And so we're nowhere near the threshold where we would need to bring in outside help or, or you know, overrun our hospital system, which is good. That's a very good sign. Uh, but the new hospitalizations uh, previous, since we did increase by 11, 11 hospitalizations a day, let's go ahead and compare that to the 21-day average. So the 21 days since the shutdown ended, the one that we are in currently right now, we have hospitalized 29.5 Alabamians per day. And uh, the previous 21-day average, 21 days while we were still in shutdown, 27. So that is an increase. But it's an increase of 2.5. That is hardly something to freak out about. Even if you were to round up that 0.5 and, and get it to 3, 3 more people per day, still not a crisis. Significant, sure, I don't even know if significance is the right word. Um, something to be aware of, yeah. But something that's going to cause our hospital system to just be completely overrun, it's not even in the ballpark with that, at least not yet. We would have to increase at an exponential rate more than that for our hospital rate to actually be completely overwhelmed. I mean, statistically speaking, this isn't even a bad flu season yet just based on the Alabama numbers, just based on our, our hospital and our resources, we're not even to the point to where the hospital system has gotten, for example, in, in 2018, where we had a really bad flu season and, and the state of Alabama was, you know, struggling a little bit to keep up. We're not even to that point yet. So right now, even though it is increasing, and that is something that is significant, because you'll remember that in the 14-day comparison that we did last week, there was only an increase by one per day. Now we're in the 2.5 area, so that's a significant amount of growth. If we come back next week and do this update, and it turns out that we're getting even more than that, like, for example, we're, we're increasing by five or six per day, okay, then, you know, maybe we need to start looking at, at something that we need to adjust. But uh, right now, nowhere near panic time, I, I wouldn't say. And finally, let's look at coronavirus deaths. So you'll see there on the coronavirus uh, deaths from, from COVID-19 that there's really nothing to write home about, but, you know, there, there is some activity there at the end. And the previous seven days, just like they've been kind of rough for hospitalizations, they've also been rough for coronavirus deaths. Now, remember, we are comparing this week to last week, both of which have happened since the end of the shutdowns. But anyway, looking at this week, the seven-day period, 14.1, the previous seven days, only 8.7, which is a difference in 5.4 new deaths per day. So this week, pretty bad overall for deaths, at least compared to last week. Again, we're still nowhere in panic territory, but, you know, we, looking at that, that is a significant increase if you're looking at it proportionally. And so hopefully next week is a lot better for us on that front. Now, the 21-day average tells a different story. Because if you're looking at the 21 days since we have opened up, 10.5 Alabamians have died per day. If you're looking at the previous 21 days, the three-week period before the shutdown ended, it's actually 12.4, which means we've actually decreased the amount of deaths 
since the shutdown ended by 1.9, so almost two per day. We've almost decreased the deaths for uh, the deaths by two per day since the shutdown ended. And so the idea that the shutdown was creating a massive difference and that uh, ending the shutdown created some kind of health catastrophe, it's simply not supported by the data. So that's all we've got for this week. We will go ahead and, and make sure that you stay informed on News Radio 1440. We'll bring you the latest and we'll do that update probably again next week. We'll see where the numbers are. Uh, hopefully there is better news to report and uh, we will certainly keep you abreast of the situation going on there. On to some local news. This one is one that I was pretty upset at. I I was glad that the response was the way that it was, but at the same time, I hate that the police officers and law enforcement were put into this situation where they had to do this because I really like this guy. I don't know if you've ever heard of Funny Man. Uh, it's a guy named Jermaine Johnson. He's an internet comedian. He does stand up. He's sort of a local celebrity around central and North Alabama. He lives in Birmingham and he really became famous and has even done some stuff with SEC Shorts, and it's a Southern thing. Uh, he really became famous for his videos about Alabama football. And so what he does is, if you've never seen it, and if you live in Alabama and haven't seen this, I don't know, you, you must be living under a rock, but I'm going to go ahead and give a, a quick briefer in case uh, some of our audience has not seen this yet. So what Funny Main does is he sits down and he... Uh, watches the football game, and he doesn't do it live. I mean, I'm sure that he he writes a bunch of this stuff, but basically he goes through what Alabama fans' reactions were going to be to football that Saturday. Now, sometimes he does it specifically for a Bama game. Sometimes he does it for an off day and reacts to all the other uh, games that are going on. And he's really, really funny. I really enjoy the videos. Uh, I still go back and watch some of his old ones because they crack me up so much. So... I really am a fan of this guy. I think he's hysterical. But unfortunately, when all of this activism started, this same guy, this, he, who's an internet comedian, decided it would be a good idea to go out and encourage people in the city of Birmingham to go create property damage, tear stuff up, and riot. And this is the video of him doing that and speaking to the crowd. The whole world is on national TV tearing stuff down we need to tear something down tonight they need to see birmingham the home of the civil rights movement tear some down tonight really is really is upsetting i hate that because like i said i really am a fan of the guy's work i'm a fan of his content i think he's very very funny but i mean that's a crime that is textbook inciting a riot. You couldn't come up with a more clear-cut example of inciting a riot, in fact. I mean, he's, he's straight up saying we need to go out and create property damage and tear things down. And so, I mean, I'm sure that his legal counsel is watching that and just going, really, dude? Seriously? You're not giving me much to work with here. So, that is the way it is, I suppose, though. So the city of Birmingham has decided to, you know, correctly, based on that, press charges against this guy, and they have arrested him. He is out on bail now, but they did arrest him, and so now he's going to face his day in court. 
I mean, that looks like a pretty darn open and shut case. I don't know, other than using the word riot, I don't think you could come up with a better example of somebody trying to instigate a riot and instigate disorderly contact and encouraging people to break a law, getting on a podium with a loudspeaker saying, hey, let's tear some stuff up. So it's a pretty open and shut case. And the thing is, I'm very much a free speech guy. In fact, my job revolves around it. There is an inborn fondness within me that always defaults to the maximum amount of free speech possible. But the speech is not what is being persecuted here. I mean, he could have said exactly those same words, and if he were doing it in a parody or it was very clear that that's not what he was talking about, something like that would have been fine. So it's not the speech that is the problem, it's the fact that he was going out and encouraging people to commit crimes in the same way that if you tell somebody uh, that you want to hire them as a hitman to go kill someone, well then that counts as you being involved, you are conspiring with someone to commit murder. It's not the fact that you are speaking that is being prosecuted, it is the fact that you're trying to go out with ill intent to commit a crime. This is the same thing. He is encouraging other people to go out and commit crimes, and therefore he rightly, by the city of Birmingham, has been charged with instigating a riot. Because that is absolutely a call for violence. Now, the funny thing is, and I say this kind of tongue-in-cheek, because of course the guy is a comedian, is that the next day he immediately went out and was on the news again saying that, oh, he never said that, even though we have video evidence of it. Here's that exchange with him in local news. I hate it. I hate it. I love my city. I don't I don't stand for that. Y'all won't be able to find not one video where I'm encouraging people to tear down our city. As a matter of fact, you'll find just the opposite. I literally encourage the people with a heart for Birmingham to not touch our city. Those are the videos you will find. You can search high and low. Now, if there's any person that should understand that the internet is forever and once a video is on the web, you can't get rid of it, it should have been this guy. I mean, he's an internet comedian. He's a YouTuber just like me. And so if there's anybody that should understand that he can't get away with just saying, oh, I never said that, even though he did say that, either he has a horrible case of short-term memory loss, or he's just trying to deny because he knows that he's, he's in deep, you know, trouble at this point because of what, what all has happened, because the internet is forever. But this is why. I say to regular people, and by regular people, I just mean people that aren't sort of in the political circle, people that are political commentators like me, or journalists, or people that are actual politicians or work with politicians. You have to be real, real careful when you decide to go public, especially as a public figure with a big platform, going forward and giving a stance on this. Because if you don't know the rules of the road, you can very quickly find yourself an offender render. And I think that that's what was going on here. I think this guy... Uh, you know, emotions were high and he was very passionate. I think that comes off in the original video that we showed you where he is calling for violence and uh, shut the old brain off and the mouth just kept going whether the brain was working or not. I think that's probably what happened here. Doesn't excuse it, not making excuses for him. In fact, frankly, I think they need to make an example out of this guy and maybe other celebrities will look at that and go, 
okay, if I am going to come out and, and come out with a, a political statement on something, I need to be a little more cautious. I need to be a little bit more um, hesitant to go out there and make a statement and, and make sure that I'm doing it in the right way. Because I'm, I've never been one of the people like, uh, what's her name, Laurie Ingram, that says, just shut up and dribble. No, I mean, if you have a platform and you're an American citizen, that's part of your right as a citizen. But if you do enter that arena, you have to know that you're going to get popped in the mouth. You can't enter a boxing ring with another boxer, get punched in the face, and, and cry foul. You knew that going in. Now, in this case, it went even further than just mere criticism and a rebuttal of his political stance. It came with legal ramifications as well. But that's the point. If you're going to step into those waters, if you're going to try to navigate it, you got to be real, real careful and make sure that you're not doing anything uh, illegal and, and also make sure that you are prepared for the repercussions of that. Maximum amount of liberty coupled with the maximum amount of responsibility for that liberty. That's what's playing out right before our eyes here in, here in Birmingham. And I really, really do hope that other people are going to look at that and realize, hmm, maybe just shouting that people should be tearing stuff up is a bad idea. Maybe even non-celebrities, people that are just in a crowd, watch that and go, yeah, maybe I shouldn't be encouraging people to throw bricks through windows. Like, I don't know if that'll have an effect, but I genuinely hope that it does. What this guy did was wrong. It was illegal. It absolutely meets the legal definition of inciting a riot, and he should have to pay for it. All right, so another story out of Birmingham that I wanted to give you an update on. You may recall that yesterday, one of the things that we talked about, was it yesterday or the day before? Well, either way, there was an issue with Church of the Highlands, and Church of the Highlands, their founder and the minister that's over all the campuses, it's the largest church in the state of Alabama. Their minister apparently wound up liking some Charlie Kirk tweets, which is funny on a number of levels because this is what caused all the controversy, despite the fact that Charlie Kirk is really not all that conservative. I mean, yeah, he's kind of a firebrand, but I wouldn't even put him up there with some of the bigger conservative firebrands, and he's kind of conservative light. So it seems odd to me that that's your big breaking point. Like, if it, at least if it were a super controversial figure like Alex Jones, I still don't agree with the decision to cancel somebody because they liked a few tweets from someone. But at the very least, I could kind of go, okay, well, yeah, that is at least a super controversial person. Charlie Kirk's really not. But anyway, moving past that point, for those of you who didn't hear it the other day, the city of Birmingham, the, the housing authority there, what they did was they ended their partnership with Church of the Highlands, and Church of the Highlands used, uh, had a program to where they were going out and, and helping provide for people in government housing, people that were poor and needed help, helping provide things like food and clothing for them. And now the city said, no, we, we would rather you not help us clothe the naked and feed the hungry because your preacher liked some tweets from Charlie Kirk that we just don't agree with. Which is ridiculous on a monumental level. But it turns out the plot thickens, and that's not where the story ends. It's actually gotten even worse. So now the Board of Education there in the city of Birmingham has announced that they are also going to be ending their relationship with Church of the Highlands, which is actually going to cause, I think, some legal problems, and here's why. What they were doing 
is two of the public schools campuses were being used as satellite locations for church services to take place within those schools. I'm not sure exactly how that worked or the setup, but suffice it to say that on Sundays, when obviously there's no school and nobody's using those buildings, they took out a lease and were paying the Birmingham Board of Education to rent out that space so that they could use it for a worship service. And the city of Birmingham just basically said, no, we're not going to do that anymore. So two things have resulted from this. First of all, the city of Birmingham and their public schools are going to lose that revenue. Now, maybe they wind up renting out the space to somebody else. I don't know. But I kind of find it hard to believe any other organization is going to want to rent out a school that's empty on a Sunday. It just seems like an odd thing to do. Maybe another church picks it up. I don't know. But I, you know, may, maybe that takes place, but I, I doubt it. So Church of the Highlands, they're, they're losing that revenue. They're losing that income that they were getting for very little you know, that building was going to be empty on Sunday anyway. So not only are their public schools now going to lack that funding that they had and, and may have actually really helped the school system. I don't know. I don't know a whole lot about Birmingham's public school budget. But anyway, surely that money helped them in some way. The second part of this is that I think this actually lands them in legal trouble. Now, the housing authority discontinuing their partnership with them to help with benevolence work, you know, I disagreed with the decision, but there's virtually no chance they get into legal trouble. There actually is legal precedent here specifically from the Supreme Court of Alabama that suggests that this may wind up with them getting sued because the Church of the Highlands, a religious organization, was specifically targeted to have their relationship, in, in other words, them renting out the space, terminated because of a political disagreement between the person that was renting it and the city, which is, of course, an extension of the government. This might very well be a freedom of speech violation. And if you're thinking, okay, Caleb, you're stretching it there a little bit, here's the court precedent. You may recall I covered this story about two years ago. Back when everything was going on with the alt-right and that was being, you know, that was center stage in as a conversation point in the country, Auburn University, my own alma mater, actually had a program to where they had rented out the space to an alt-right leader and, and somebody that was very famous, and so, or at least locally famous. I don't know if he was very famous nationwide amongst alt-right people. But anyway, they, they opened that space up, and he rented it, went through all the proper paperwork, and Auburn originally said, yeah, we'll go ahead and let him have that. Then later they said, um, no, we don't want that. And then the Supreme Court of the state of Alabama they came back and said, well, yeah, actually, you kind of have to. You can't just, if the space is open and available to the public and the average person can come in and rent it out, if you don't allow them to do that because you disagree with their political stance, you disagree with the message that is going to be presented there, well, then it turns out that you are in trouble because that is a government facility and a government building and you cannot discriminate based on the message that is going to be presented there. And so this looks like, remember, a city-controlled building, city-controlled property for a public school, not allowing the space to be used because they have a political disagreement with the person that wants to rent it. I think you're going to see a very similar case play out here. I don't know if Church of the Highlands is, is going to want to go that route. I don't know if they're going to want to sue them. But there is at least the potential, the possibility for a lawsuit to be brought up here. And I think that 
if if that case goes anything similar to what happened in Auburn, then you're going to see Church of the Highlands actually come out on top, and the city of Birmingham, their uh, their um, board of education, they're actually going to be in quite a bit of trouble if that does take place. Now, one other thing before we go to a break here. Uh, the protesters in Seattle, this really, I just, I have no words. that There are people on the left actually defending this. Protesters in Seattle have set up what is a autonomous zone within the city of Seattle, and it covers about a six-block radius. So there's a significant portion of the city, you know, not massive, but a significant part of the city that they have erected a wall and they have guards and they're checking people's identification coming in and out. They say that they're going to set up their own currency and they're basically saying they are an autonomous nation, you know, kind of like the Vatican in Rome, that they are an independent nation, no longer a part of the state of Seattle, or sorry, the, the state of Washington, the city of Seattle, or the United States of America, that they are their own country now. Which is hilarious to me on a number of levels because I thought secession was racist. That's what I was always told, that anybody even talking about secession, we heard this all the time when Southern states talked about it back when Barack Obama was in office, that even mentioning the word secession is racist because that's what happened with the pro-slavery South in the Civil War. That was the talking point that we always heard. And yet now that's exactly what Antifa has essentially done. They've taken over a spot of land. They have said that they are seceding from the Union and they are their own autonomous nation. I thought that was racist. I thought that was the whole point. And the funny thing is, and my buddy Justin brought this up, so I'm going to give him credit for that one. The first thing they did was build a wall. The first thing they did was establish a border, build a wall around it, and now they're checking people's passports in and out because they don't want anybody in there that they don't want in there. So they're basically creating a Donald Trump dream world where, <laughs> where they have a giant wall that keeps everyone they don't want out. And they only let people, <laughs> they only let people in that they like. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. They, they essentially took the Donald Trump playbook to create their own country. I, I find that hysterical. Um, it's kind of like Arkham city. I don't know if you've ever played Arkham city. It's the Batman game by Warner brothers. And it is absolutely phenomenal. One of the best games that's ever been made. But that aside, what they have there is they have basically their own section of Gotham City that has been completely shut down and the criminals are running everything. That's basically what's going on in Seattle right now. There is a, a chunk of the city. And by the way, their, their headquarters is the old police precinct that they abandoned. And the mayor actually told them to abandon, which is ridiculous on a number of levels because of things like equipment, uh, firearms, safety gear, uh, crime evidence that's, that is in a police precinct. But anyway, leave that aside for a second. It really is like Arkham City. It really is that they, they've established their own little uh, criminal hotbed within the city that's walled off to the rest of it. So I don't know, maybe, maybe Batman needs to go in there and take care of it, take out all the Antifa thugs. But anyway. The thing that's funny about this, though, is there is such a, a blinding double standard because I always thought that seizing land from other people was wrong. Isn't that what we're always told every time anything re relating to Native Americans or Thanksgiving or Columbus Day comes up? That taking land from somebody else by force, that's wrong. 
Now, granted, I believe it actually is wrong, even though I think it's a mischaracterization of what happened between the Americans and the Native Americans to a great degree. Of course, there were some wrong things that took place, and some people did forcibly take Native American land. But, you know, a lot of that was purchased. But anyway, without getting off into the weeds on that, I thought that that was racist too. Seizing land from other people and claiming it as your own, I thought that was racist, but apparently it's not. It's okay if Antifa does it. And then there's such a double standard with the naming of, and, and I know that a bunch of people on the left were, were crying foul and outraged that the Trump administration and Attorney General Barr were talking about Antifa being designated as a terrorist organization. After this, I don't see how you could claim anything else. Because think about this. The left contends that Antifa is not a terrorist organization, constantly stands up for them and tries to justify their violence when they do things, despite the fact that they have called for a violent overhaul of the American government, despite the fact that they, on routinely, even before these protests started with George Floyd, for the past several years that Antifa has been operating, they attack random people that they disagree with. They'll attack you if you're wearing, for example, a MAGA hat. They randomly attack people just walking down the street they think might disagree with them. Uh, I remember them beating up that old guy in the parking garage. We've had 17 deaths since the protest started. 17 deaths associated with the protesters, some of them police officers. I mean, just horrendous stuff. Yet that also doesn't qualify them as a terrorist organization. They're looting and burning businesses. I mean, that is happening, of course, here recently, but that's been happening for a while now. When Ben Shapiro came to Berkeley, they started tearing up ATMs and burning down a Starbucks. So uh, this is not a, just a recent event. Antifa has been doing this for a long time. They've been inciting riots, obviously. They were the ones, and, and we actually did a video on this just a couple weeks ago, that Antifa is actually infiltrating a lot of these protests and specifically whipping the crowd up, uh, delivering mysterious pallets of bricks with shovels, uh, also going around and uh, inserting themselves into protests to try to stir the crowd up. We saw them spray painting and graffitiing that Starbucks on the video that the the lady there was saying, look, they're saying that this was Black Lives Matter, even though it's two white girls in Antifa suits. Uh, so they've been inciting riots for sure and trying to stir discord. And then calls for abolition of law enforcement agencies like the police, which they're calling for right now. They're saying defund the police, abolish the police. They're saying abolish ICE. Uh, they even held the ICE facility there in Washington state, held, it host held people in there hostage and took over the government building. And then you also have uh, them calling for open borders, which again is hilarious considering the first thing they did was establish a border when they took over a part of an American city. And then this, which would be full-on treason. I mean, please, anybody, explain to me how what they did is any different than when the state seceded. I'll tell you how it's different. The states actually did have a government in place, and there was a vote of the people that preceded that. That didn't happen with Antifa. I'm not trying to justify what the southern states did, even though constitutionally you can make a pretty strong case that they had the right to do it. But in Antifa's case, there was no vote. There was no order. They didn't establish a city government. They just decided to take over a big chunk of, of Seattle there, and that they're going to establish their own government at some point. 
They didn't have a pre-existing condu- uh, government and they didn't ask everybody's opinion that was living within that six block radius before they just took over it and made it into their own thing. These people are dangerous anarchists, terrorists. I don't see how anybody looks at all that and doesn't see that. And the funny thing about all this is that the same left that is constantly trying to claim that Antifa isn't terrorist, they're the very same ones that are saying that the NRA are terrorists and saying that, you know, they should be taken out and they should be listed as a terrorist organization. I cannot tell you the number of people, Ilhan Omar, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, actual Congress people holding elected offices, not just in Washington, but around the country in, in different state legislators, so on and so forth. I saw several governors and attorney generals saying the same, uh, attorneys general saying the same thing. They're saying that the NRA should be a terrorist organization, but Antifa shouldn't. Now, I just listed to you all the things that Antifa's members did. In the, NRA, in the NRA's case, the reason they say they should be listed as a terrorist organization is that people not associated with the NRA are doing very bad things with guns. That there are occasionally bad people in the country that have no affiliation with the NRA whatsoever that because of the NRA's lobbying and policies and because guns are readily available, that they get that even though most of the time the vast majority of the mass shootings that we see are done with guns that are obtained illegally. So the NRA's policy would have no bearing on whether those people got guns or not. And the only NRA member that has ever been a part of any mass shooting, a part of that story, was a guy in Southern Springs, Texas, who shot the mass shooter and brought him down. That's the only person that's ever been associated with a mass shooting in the United States that was an actual NRA member, and he's the one that stopped it. And yet somehow, the left can look at all of that information and say, Antifa, no, they're definitely not terrorists. But the NRA, oh yeah, they're definitely a terrorist organization. There's no question about that. No NRA member has ever done any of the things that they just, uh, that you could list off that Antifa has done, at least that we know of. And so the left trying to claim that because the, the NRA supports an actual part of our constitution, something that is part of our government, they say they're a bunch of dangerous radical anarchists, despite the fact they're supporting an actual portion of America's laws as opposed to Antifa that is saying there should be no law enforcement and the people should just police themselves. And that, I think, may be the funniest thing about this whole call to hashtag defund the police. Okay, you want to defund the police and you also don't want anybody to have guns. What's that going to result in? Only criminals having guns and there will be no police to protect you from them. Also, if you defund the police, how are you going to get the guns from people? There would need to be some kind of law enforcement to round up all the guns to, you know, carry out your policies. You can't do that if there's not police. So it's a really strange, really strange dynamic that they don't seem to really comprehend the the fallout of what they are suggesting. But the thing is, and the thing that this story really shows how they've taken over a, a several blocks of an American city, it shows that these people as crazy as they are, as inconsistent as they are, as nuts as they are, are serious. 
They may be crazy, but they're not playing when they say that they want to overthrow the American government. They may be crazy, but they're 100% serious when they're saying we want to defund the police and abolish ICE and open up the borders and every other crazy cockamamie idea that comes out of their mouth. They're not playing here. And we need to realize that. These people are a legitimate threat to the American people. And they should be treated like domestic terrorists because that's what they are. We're going to go ahead and take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment on tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for continuing to be with us. You know, there's been a lot of crap going on the past week, and there's just no better way to say it. This week has been utter chaos. And I saw this story. And when I clicked on it, it turns out it's actually a week old. This happened on Thursday of last week. Or, sorry, uh, Saturday of last week, because this would have been, what, June 6th? So, yeah, yeah, it would have been uh, Saturday, because my birthday was on Friday. So, that's how, that's how I remember what day it was. So, I saw this, and I saw that it was old. And I considered not putting it on there, but you know what? It's such a feel-good story. I feel like I need it. I feel like you guys probably need it. And so I'm doing this story, even though I know it's a few days old and, and somehow I just missed it and didn't realize that it had taken place because it is such a great story. So there were protesters that actually defended a police officer yesterday. And I know we've talked an awful lot today about Antifa and Black Lives Matter and how a, a lot of them are dangerous revolutionaries, that they're opportunists using these protests and using this moment where there's a lot of civil unrest to sort of be a means to their ends. But as I have said since the very beginning, there are good-hearted, well-intended American people that, whether they, it is true or not, perceive that there is an injustice done here. Now, understand what I'm saying here. When I say perceives there is an injustice, I'm talking about systematic racism. I'm not talking about the George Floyd thing, because, of course, that is something that everybody views as an injustice. So that that one, I mean, pretty much universally, everybody, right, left, conservative, liberal, black, white, everybody agrees that was wrong. But I'm talking about overall, there are people that have legitimate disagreements, whether it's perceived or, or real, that there is systematic racism still going on in America. I believe they're wrong on that. I think the stats bear that out. But leave that aside for a second. Even the people that believe that it's 100% real, there are still people, men of goodwill, that genuinely don't want anybody to get hurt. They just feel like they aren't being heard and want their voices to be heard. And I think that this is a great example of it coming out of Louisville, Kentucky. So the other day, this, this story came out, and this is from USA Today, of... The, uh, the protesters actually defending a police officer. The headline reads, They saved me. How protesters protected a lone cop. A moment captured in powerful photos. Louisville, Kentucky. Officer Galen Henshaw heard the call over the radio. One of his fellow officers was in trouble. A crowd of protesters had surrounded a police cruiser at the base of Clark Memorial Bridge. The officer inside radioed for help as protesters strobed in blue and strobed in blue and red patrol car lights, banged on the car's hood and windshield. Henshaw, a 4th Division patrol officer and part part of the Louisville Metro Police Department's special response team, drove as close as he could to the scene. As he got out of his cruiser, he was immediately surrounded by the protesters. Some yelled profanities, others balled their fists. He made his way through a crowd wearing extra, uh, 40 extra pounds of survival gear, a baton, vest, helmet, and body armor. 
he was alone. As the crowd grew, Henshaw detoured to the front of Barino's pizzeria so that he could keep his back to the wall. He needed a place to stop and reassess the situation to be sure that nobody could get behind him. He also needed to keep his eye on his trapped colleague. Overhead, a police helicopter kept watch and occasionally flooded the intersection with a spotlight. Sirens pierced the air and protesters chanted even louder. Henshaw's nearest help was still blocks away. The crowd moved closer. The yelling got angrier. Protesters hurled questions at him. Are you one of the good ones? How do you think we feel? One woman screamed, all gas, no brakes. He tried to respond, but was drowned out by the... Uh, drowned out by the sirens and yelling. And then skip down a little bit later in the same story. Local entrepreneur Darren Lee Jr. spotted Henshaw in the advancing crowd and linked arms with the stranger next to him in a red mask. Once I saw the guy with the red mask step up, I said, I gotta step up, said Lee, who also runs a child care center. It was reactive. I just went. He had no idea what would happen next. Quote, I really thought at that moment, protect him. It really isn't his fault, Lee said. Lee also worried that Henshaw would react and hit him from behind, so he turned to reassure that the officer that was uh, reassure the officer that they were going to protect him. He was looking really nervous and scared, Lee said. If he panicked, then there was going to be war out there. Suddenly, the protesters seemed to turn on Lee. One man who had marched with them for nearly the whole protest was surprised. Another shouted in Lee's face, How can you protect him? Lee got nervous. Ultimately, five men formed a human shield to protect Henshaw, all of them strangers to one another. Nobody knew the name of the man to his left or his right. Three were black, one was white, one was Dominican, all linking arms to keep harm away from Henshaw, himself half Pakistani. A human was in trouble and right is right, said Ricky McLean, a factory worker from the old, old Louisville, who was one of the ones locked on to Lee's left arm. That's powerful. And I think that the thing that makes it most powerful is the part that we just read about when Lee goes up there and he says, I was scared that maybe the police officer was going to hit me from behind. And so I was there and, and trying to reassure him, look, I'm, I'm here trying to protect you. You see, that's a guy that was afraid, afraid of the crowd and afraid of the police officer. But he saw the opportunity to do something that was right. And, and in, in, in his own words, you saw that quote that I read just a second ago. And I think that this is the best line of the entire story, uh, that he was a human that was in trouble and right is right. That's phenomenal. I mean, just somebody that looks up, sees an opportunity to do the right thing and to protect somebody, even if he doesn't necessarily agree with the person, doesn't know anything about the person. He's saying, that guy's in trouble. I'm going to help him no matter what. Even though he could very easily perceive him as somebody on the other side, as obviously many people in the crowd did. And even though he knew the people in the crowd might turn on him, that was a very, very brave thing for him to do. And I commend him and the citizens of Louisville for doing that. I wanted to show you this as well. This is a, a, a depiction. This is a picture of that event taking place. And you can see there that these guys, 
don't know each other, have no idea what's going to happen. They don't know if the crowd's about to turn on them. They form a barrier around this guy to keep this cop safe and let him get back. And, and a few minutes later, police officers did arrive to help defuse the situation and they got him out of there and they got the person that he was responding to out of there. So all's well that ends well, nobody got hurt, but man, that's, that's just a powerful example of when you take yourself out of the situation, you, you, you take your emotions out of it and make a conscious decision to try to do what is right. There are fantastic results that can happen. And I really do think, and I don't know anything about his faith. I don't know anything about his, his spiritual journey or anything like that. But based on the standard that he's giving, it sounds to me like he is somebody that has a biblical worldview. Because the only way that you can arrive there, I mean, you can get through there through logic, sure, I, I'm, I, I understand that. But the only way that you can really get to a point to where you see all human beings as equal and deserving of protection is to believe that there is a single universal God that is the creator of all of us, because that puts you on even playing field with everybody of every other race. I mean, it'd be very easy for an evolutionist or a Darwinist or so on and so forth to believe that that's not necessarily the case, that some humans are more evolved or a, a better species or a better breed of human than others. You have a biblical worldview, you can't believe that. You have to believe that we're all one people. And to put it in his own words, he looks over, hey, human in trouble, it's my job to help out because he's my brother. He's a person that is an image bearer of God just like me. I don't know if that's how he is. Maybe he's not a particularly spiritual person, but just based on that, I would go ahead and, and go out a limb and guess that he probably is. And even if he's not, the principle that he's talking about, about seeing human beings as equal and deserving of protection, that is something that comes directly from Scripture, even if he doesn't realize that's where it comes from. So I commend the city of Louisville, and I've, I have a great deal of love for the city of Louisville. I've been there a lot. That's where the FFA National Convention used to be. And so I wouldn't say that I know the city well, but I've been in the city a lot in my lifetime, probably more than most Alabamians. And I can say uh, they absolutely deserve kudos for that. No question. Let's go ahead and go to the Daily Dose of Stupid. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. <laughs> Now, for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, we do have an extra special treat for you. There has been a ton of stupid this week. There has been a ton of stupid just in the past 24 hours. And so, I'm not going to go quite as deep into each story as I normally do, but we're going to kind of do a rapid fire of stupid because, man, there is a lot of stupid this week. So, let's go ahead and get started without further ado. The cancel culture has really hit a brand new level of insanity. I mean... It was already dumb to cancel people because they disagreed with you. you. You don't want to watch their comedy act because they liked a tweet from President Trump or something ridiculous like that. It has gone into overdrive the past couple of weeks. So with everything that's going on with the police officers, that's where we're really going to be focusing today. Cops, the show that has been running now for 32 years owned by Paramount, is not going to be running anymore. Paramount dropped the series, and PD Live, which is another police officer show, not nearly as popular, hasn't been running for nearly as long, but Police Officer Live has been dropped. Why is it that we're associating every single police officer 
with this one bad police officer and the three cops standing around him that it were at the very least negligent of George Floyd. I, I don't understand because a cop in Minneapolis did something that was horrendous. And there's no question about that, that now we can't have shows about cops anymore. Now I'm not a fan of cops. I've never really watched cops. I just never got the draw. It's not something that personally appeals to me. So me losing cops isn't going to affect my life in any way, but it is so insane that we are taking one example of one bad cop in a nation of 327 million people and projecting that to every single law enforcement officer in the country. That we can't even have shows that depict police officers because of that. That's just insane. There are people that are saying the same thing with Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is a, a popular sitcom. I don't really know uh, what station it's on. Is that a CW show? I doesn't matter. Anyway, because Brooklyn Nine-Nine, of course, happens in a police precinct, it's a comedy show. It's kind of like a an office comedy like The Office or Parks and Rec, but in a police precinct instead. Uh, they're saying that they need to get rid of that now. We should have the final season in a post office or something. It's just, it's insane. We, we can't even have a depiction of a police officer now. And the same media, this is what I find so ironic about this. The very same media that is telling us, oh, you can't because there are some riots and some protesters that are going on that are actually engaging in things like violence and burning buildings and destroying property. You can't project that onto every person that is out there protesting. By the way, I agree. However, if we are to compare these two standards that the media is trying to give us, on the one hand, you shouldn't, because there are some violence, uh, violent incidents and some people turning protest into riots. That's happening a lot more frequently than police officers kneeing on a guy's neck and staying there for eight minutes. That's not a common thing with police officers. It doesn't happen all that often. The reason that is a massive national news story and has been for the past couple weeks is because it doesn't happen all that often. If it did, it wouldn't be in the news. And statistically speaking, very few people a year in this gigantic country that we're in even have a deadly encounter with a police officer. It's in the double digits. It's so small. And yet, because of this one incident, we're supposed to assume that all police officers are bad. We can't even have shows that have police officers in them. What kind of crazy standard is that? Because if you were going to project actions onto a larger group of people, it would make far more sense to do it with the rioters because in every major city there have been incidents of violence. Even here in Podunk, Montgomery, and Birmingham and whatnot, even here we've had incidents of violence even though we're not a very big city. And this is happening in every major city in America. Dallas, Houston, Atlanta, L.A. I mean, just go on and on. Baltimore, New York. It's happening in every major city, and yet in that particular scenario, we're not supposed to project the actions of some of their members. I wouldn't even say a few because of how frequently it happens. We're not supposed to project that onto the entire group with police officers. We can take one police officer and his three cohorts that didn't do anything, project that to every police officer in the country. That is utter insanity. Uh, Legos. This is another one, and granted, there does need to be some clarification on this one. Some of you may have heard that LEGO has discontinued its sets that feature police officers, firefighters, and oddly enough, the White House. 
odd because I wouldn't think of the White House as being a racist institution, especially considering that four years ago, the primary occupant of the White House was a half-black man. And he had been there for eight years. I don't really think that the White House would be a racist institution considering that Barack Obama is the previous occupant of that. And I know that what they're doing there is they're trying to associate Trump with racism and therefore we can't have Lego sets of the White House going out there because Lego has a line called Lego architecture. This is my wheelhouse now. We're talking about Legos. <laughs> they have a line called Lego architecture where they have different famous buildings from around the world that you can make out of Legos and the White House just happens to be one of those buildings. But now they're saying that we're not going to have police officers and firemen. And I'm sitting there like, what did the firefighters do there? They're not involved in this at all. I mean, do we think that firefighters are going to be chopping down a house, trying to get inside and go, Oh, black person. Nope. See you later. That's not a thing that, of course the, the cops don't do that either. They don't respond to a, a break in and look around and go, Oh, this is a black house. Never mind, We're out of here. It's just stupid. But it turns out that that's not actually what happened. Granted, this is also stupid, but not as stupid as we originally thought. It turns out that Lego just discontinued its online advertising. So they have actually discontinued the ads that featured officers in Lego form or firefighters in Lego form or the White House but all of those sets are still available for purchase and they only did this temporarily. So there will be ads featuring Lego police officers and Lego firefighters in the future. They just have put it on pause for right now. Still dumb, but that is the standard. So it's not as bad as we originally thought. One of the craziest ones though, is that Paw Patrol has come under fire. Now I'm a 31 year old bachelor with no kids. So I have no idea what the heck Paw Patrol is. I had to do some research on this one. It's sad that I probably did more research on this than I did the coronavirus update at the top of the hour. But, but I did. I had to do some research on this because I have no idea what Paw Patrol is. Apparently, it's a kid's show that features dogs and uh, cats and other animals. And they all have different jobs. And there's one character that's that's kind of a main character that he's a little police dog named Chase who wears a police officer uniform. And it's a cute little cartoon. It's mostly geared at kids that are under about five or six. So like that would be the cutoff, which means it's, it's got a very, very young audience. And the Paw Patrol people, because they have a, a puppy in a police uniform named Chase, um, they decided to uh, suspend that for a while. And, like I said, I'm a 31-year-old bachelor. I don't have kids. I didn't even know what this thing was until this story came out. So you could say, I don't have a dog in this fight. Okay, that was lame. Uh, but seriously here, uh, this is the tweet that the Paw Patrol people put out earlier. Remember, this is a kid's show aimed at very, very young kids. They said via Twitter, in solidarity of, quote, amplify melon... I think that's supposed to be maligned voices. I don't know if that's a typo or not. Uh, we will be muting our content until July, uh, June 7th to give access for black voices to be heard so we can continue to listen and further our lear learning. Hashtag amplify black voices. Okay, so this is another one of those circumstances where we get a double dose of stupid. 
First of all, this would be stupid no matter what show said it. It wouldn't matter the content of the show. It would still be really dumb for them to do this because do you assume that because you have a TV show that black people aren't being heard or aren't allowed to speak? That's not a thing. Like, I've never heard of a law in America that says if Paw Patrol is on in the room, black people are not allowed to talk. That's not a thing that goes on in the United States. I'm also really glad that we've isolated the the real core of all of our problems in this country, a cartoon puppy that wears a police uniform. Boy, really getting to the heart of the matter there, America. But anyway, that's a dumb thing regardless of what the show is. It's not as though them turning off their content and doing the black box thing to where the kids can't watch their cartoons because of this is going to help anybody or going to hear one more black person, uh, allow one more black person to speak. But the thing that makes this even dumber is the fact that the audience are like three and four year olds. Do you understand how stupid that is? Because even if you could somehow do enough mental gymnastics to make a case that the TV programming being on means that people are going to be less likely to hear black people, what do you think is going to happen here? Do you think that the three-year-old is going to be like, huh, Paw Patrol is off. Maybe I should go read Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. That's not a thing that is going to happen. And I don't understand how they think this is helping anyone. Here's the explanation. They don't think this is helping anyone. They don't think that the kids that are now not able to watch their cartoons are in any way going to be benefited or learn more about history or the civil rights movement or any of those things. What they are doing is capitulating to try to make sure that nobody gets angry at them. What they are doing is bowing the knee and kissing the ring so that the mob doesn't come after them and tries to get them canceled. Guess what? Not going to work. This is why I tell people, especially ones in conservative circles, don't apologize. Unless you actually did something that is morally incorrect, don't apologize just because the mob comes after you, because you will never appease them. Period. It can't be done. You cannot please these people. A good example, I said the exact same thing to Chick-fil-A. I said to Chick-fil-A when they, it looked like they were going to cave and they were going to stop giving any uh, money to charities that espoused a traditional view of marriage, that had any kind of biblical view on homosexuality, that kind of thing, which eventually, of course, they did, and they caved, and that's the reason that I don't go there anymore. But when Chick-fil-A did that, I said, and I predicted the day that it happened, it's not going to do you any good. You're going to go through all this trouble. You're going to tick everybody off. You are not going to appease anybody in the gay movement. They're still going to come after you. Sure enough, it was not even 24 hours later that they were all saying, okay, now you have to give money to gay causes and, and all this other stuff, another list of demands that if Chick-fil-A did all of them, it still wouldn't appease them. These are not rational adults. These are crazy people. They are children throwing a temper tantrum. And when you're a three-year-old, it's funny because we're talking about Paw Patrols, this is the analogy I'm using here. When a three-year-old is kicking and screaming in the floor that you won't let him have ice cream for dinner, the worst thing that you can do for that child is to give them ice cream for dinner. Because all they've done then is they've learned, oh, all I have to do is throw a temper tantrum and then I get whatever I want. 
That is the absolute worst thing that you can do, but that's exactly what Paw Patrol did. And of course, what happened is it only made them a bigger target. It only made people more angry at them. So this, you know, do dopey argument by anybody, but when they capitulated, the, the left mob still came after them. This is from the New York Times, not some random dude on Twitter, the New York Times. Amanda Hess, who works for the New York Times, penned a piece in their newspaper called, quote, The Protests Come for Paw Patrol. And in this article, she refers to herself as a Paw Patrol hater and said, and I quote, I don't want to bring a child into a world where Paw Patrol is available to stream. Well, Amanda, honey, I'm going to tell you right now, with that kind of worldview, I doubt you're going to be bringing a child into the world anytime soon. It's just my personal opinion, but I'm thinking that that's probably what's going to take place. But nonetheless, her overall point is that we shouldn't even allow old episodes of Paw Patrol that were filmed before all this happened to even be available for children to watch today. These people are lunatics. And sadly, they're the ones running the insane asylum at this point. They're the ones that are canceling anybody that has even a slight disagreement with them. So now we can't even have a fictional depiction of a pretend talking dog wearing a police uniform because it depicts police officers in a positive light. That is the new standard that the left has set for itself. They want you to think, they want you to think, they want your children to think that police are the enemy and they must be gotten rid of. That's when I say the left has been doing mental gymnastics, the, the media, especially on CNN, have been doing mental gymnastics trying to justify the defund the police because they know that if that becomes the mantra of the left, that will cost them the election. They know that. They know that that is a ridiculously unpalatable position for them to take. Police officers still enjoy a more than 60% approval rating by the vast majority of Americans, even in the wake of the George Floyd scandal. The vast majority of people still trust their local police officers, they still like their local police officers, and the left knows that if they go down this road, that they are in serious trouble for the election, but they also don't want to tick off the mob and have the mob come after them. So they're doing this dance to where they're trying to say, oh, well, we're still against the police officers and we still want to cancel the police officers, but also we don't want to like totally defund the police officers. When we say defund the police officers, we just mean like funnel some of the funding to other causes. And then the people on the left, the actual radicals are coming back and saying, no, we mean actually abolish the police officers. And so this back and forth is going on and they don't want you to even think about police officers in a positive light. They don't want police officers. And since they're getting rid of police, they're getting rid of ICE agents, they, they want open borders, is the new Democrat platform just anarchy on all levels? Because that seems to be the direction that they're going. And then finally, one of the more ridiculous examples of woke culture and trying to capitulate to the angry mob. Oddly enough, Lady Annabellum. Now, this one makes the least sense to me because Lady Annabellum is a country group and uh, the vast majority of their base are not going to be people on the left. I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, most of the people on the left are not listening to Lady Annabellum or really any other kind of country music. But nonetheless, Lady Annabellum, who just like pretty much every other celebrity and country music star, they are very much entrenched in a society, in a culture, in a bubble that supports leftist ideas and leftist causes. 
For those of you who don't know, Antebellum is a reference to a period in history directly before the Civil War, which of course would have included slavery. And now, so what they've done now is sort of proactively tried to change their name so that the mob doesn't come after them too. So what they've done now is they've changed their name to Lady A. Now, I'm kind of a Lady Antebellum fan. Run to You is a fantastic song. I don't really like much of the other stuff that they've done. You know, I'm pretty picky about my country. But I don't understand this at all. Because the reason that they are named Lady Antebellum in the first place is because their original photo shoot that they did for their band when they were forming, the very first one they did was in front of an antebellum house. In other words, a house that was built before the period in the Civil War. Sort of that that Old South architecture style. And so because of that, they decided to name themselves Lady Antebellum. Perfectly reasonable, right? That is an academic term for that period in history, but apparently just because that period in history included slavery, and granted was a significant part of it, I'm not trying to say that it wasn't, but because it included slavery, they think that people might in the future potentially get offended, so they're going to go ahead and change their name anyway. That's so incredibly ridiculous. Remember that when it came to not American history, world history, the history of the human race, every single society, with maybe a handful of very rare exceptions, prior to the 19th century, all had slavery. And so, if we're not allowed to even reference the antebellum period in the South because slavery was a part of that, and by the way, this seems to be the route that HBO was going because you may have heard that they actually took Gone with the Wind off the air, which is also stupid. But anyway, if they're going to go ahead and do that and make it to where it's toxic to even mention the antebellum period or make a reference to it, then we have to do that with literally every other period in American history before the 19th century. And you know, maybe we should even do that for stuff that happened after the antebellum period. I mean... Let's be honest, the 1960s were not exactly kind to black Americans. There was all kinds of crap going on. So can we also not mention anything about the hippie movement? Can we not talk about the information age? Like, do, do we have to get rid of and jettison all of that? Because there were people that did bad things in those periods of history? This is the new standard that we're moving towards. And I have friends that legitimately are like, ah, it's not a big deal, and and I understand that. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's not um, it's not massively going to change anybody's life, whether or not they're called Lady Antebellum or Lady A. I mean, frankly, I never thought it was a, a fantastic band name. It's okay. Um, it's not as good as, you know, Guns N' Roses. That's fantastic. Uh, but it's not the world's best band name or anything, and I'm not suggesting that their career is going to go down the tube because they changed their name to Lady A, which is barely different. But I'm worried about the standard that this sets. Because if we're now going to live in a world where everybody has to constantly walk on eggshells and they can't even mention anything that might be even somewhat tangentially connected to a bad thing that happened in history, we're not going to be allowed to mention any history. I mean, if we're talking about band names, let's talk about the Stone Temple Pilots for a second. You know, a 90s band. Uh, Stone Temples, which is a reference to what happened in South America with 
Aztec Mayan cultures that built giant stone pyramids as, you know, a place to worship to their gods, that's a place where child sacrifice, human sacrifice, ritualistic rape, cannibalism, all those things took place in those buildings. Does anybody believe that the Stone Temple Pilots are condoning child sacrifice and cannibalism because they're named after stone temples that just happen to be where those things took place? No reasonable person assumes that. But for some reason, we're supposed to believe that a reasonable person could look at a band called Lady Antebellum and think, oh, they're pro-slavery. We have completely jettisoned all logic and reason if we think that. There's nobody that should assume that just because they reference or even romanticize the antebellum South that they are automatically in favor of slavery and all of the trappings that went in on it. I mean, think about this. Pride and Prejudice and other Jane Austen novels that romanticize the Renaissance period. That was right in the middle of probably the most uh, vibrant, thriving era of the Atlantic slave trade. Are we to assume that anybody that likes a Jane Austen book is automatically a racist and is in favor of slavery because it glorifies the period in history where that was taking place? I would hope that nobody's dumb enough to believe that. But I don't see why that would be any different in assuming that a band that calls themselves Lady Antebellum is equally condoning that or that them calling themselves that is somehow insensitive to people. That's utterly ridiculous. So, there you have it. I mean, that is the week of stupid in an eggshell. Uh, in a nutshell. Walking on eggshells in a nutshell. I'm getting my shells mixed up here. But anyway, uh, hopefully I didn't offend the chickens. Let's go ahead and go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for The Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on Tactics. Today's Chaplain's Report does come from the book of 1 Samuel. We are continuing our series in 1 Samuel, and you may recall from the other day that when we left off in this story, what had just happened is that the prophet Samuel called upon God to bring down a thunderstorm. Actually, it, it's kind of vague in the scripture whether or not Samuel requested that or God was going to send it anyway, and Samuel was just basically informing the people that this is what God was going to do. Either way, it's the wheat harvest, and a giant storm is coming the way of Israel as a reminder for the sin of asking for a king, even though God had repeatedly told them no. They continued asking for a king. They continued insisting upon it. So eventually, what happened is God said, all right, fine. You want a king? You're getting a king, but I warned you against it. And because of this sin, this is what happens, and this is the reaction that Israel has to this event taking place. You can see there in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verses 19 through 25. Then all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, so that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. Samuel said to the people, Do not fear, you have committed this evil. 
yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. You must not turn aside, for then you would go after futile things, which cannot profit or deliver, because they are futile. For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, but I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. In this particular passage, I think there are really four big lessons that we can take from this. The first one that we see very early on in, the first, in verse 20 there is that God is merciful even in punishment. This isn't a question about whether or not Israel is going to sin. That has already taken place. So even when God is delving out punishment, even when he has made his judgment, that was wrong, and even when he says this is going to be the consequence for that wrong action, even at that point he is merciful because it says that the children of Israel understood that what they had done is worthy of death. By the way, that's no different than the sins that we commit as flawed human beings today. When we make a mistake, we know, based on the scripture, we know based on Paul's writings in Romans, for example, that all of sin and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin are death. And yet, God continues to let us live. He continues to allow us to grow and to try to learn from our mistakes. This is something that Israel had to learn in this moment. That, yeah, I mean, that happens, but... As horrible as it was, and as scared as they were at the, the reaction from it, he says, but God is going to let you live. God is not going to destroy his people because of this sin. He is going to allow a level of repentance to take place. So even then, God is merciful. Number two, punishment is a call for correction, not destruction. So if you'll see there in verse 21, one of the things that Samuel is trying to convey to them and address them is saying, look, just because this happens, don't let this be a cause to turn you away from God. Now, sometimes, whether it's a punishment directly from God or something that's just the consequences of our own actions, in other words, we define God and something really terrible happens to us as a result of our own bad decision-making, a lot of people use that as an opportunity to say that God has somehow wronged them or he's not looking out for them. Samuel is pleading with them not to do that. He's saying, look, this is something that is done for your benefit, it is done for your correction, and you should remember this and move forward. But don't let it be the thing that causes you to stop serving the Lord. If anything, this should be something that brings you closer to God, something that brings you to him that reestablishes that relationship. And so this is something that Samuel is saying to Israel, but it could just as easily be said to us. When you sin, when you have done wrong, when you feel the consequences of that sin, whether they're self-imposed or, or whether it's a happenstance or whether it's God directly doing something to intervene, that should be an opportunity to bring you closer to God, to make you more want to serve him, not to drive you away. See, that's the purpose. 
God isn't trying to drive us away when those things happen. He's trying to correct the bad behavior so that he can be closer to us. In the same way that a parent punishes their child hoping that the child's behavior will adjust so that they can actually have an opportunity to be closer to that child because they are made better by that. God is doing exactly the same thing to Israel here. The third big thing is that even when people are wrong, even when people are wrong and we know that we didn't take part into it, it it wasn't us, it's still incumbent upon us to pray for them. Samuel didn't want a king. Samuel did not commit this sin. He is not the person that wanted Israel to have a king. He wanted them to stay under the judges' system the way that they always had. He was actually distraught when Israel asked for a king. And so you could kind of understand from a human standpoint, looking at it through the world's eyes, why Samuel could kind of look at this and go, well, I wasn't involved. You guys pray to God for forgiveness yourself. Samuel doesn't do that. In fact, Samuel says it would be a sin for him to stop praying for Israel. That's really powerful. And I think it should be a reminder to us that that let's say maybe a person or even a large group of people within our church, that they do something that's horrible. We have options there, right? We could do nothing. Or we could look at them and just kind of flip our nose up at them and go, oh yeah, you were one of the ones that was engaged in that. I don't want anything to do with you anymore. But Samuel says the only non-sinful option in that situation is to pray for them to pray that their relationship with God would be reestablished, to pray that they would come to repentance, to pray for their their welfare and well-being. That's what Samuel does, and that's what you're supposed to do. You know, we've talked an awful lot the past couple weeks, and I think rightfully so, about unity and disunity, about things that can cause divisions in the church. You know, one of the things that can cause those divisions is when somebody screws up and does something wrong, even if they are legitimately in the wrong, and even though the other party may legitimately be in the right, if the party that's in the right can't forgive them. Think about the story of the prodigal son. The older brother, he does the opposite of what Samuel suggests here. He's the one that doesn't want anything to do with his younger brother, that holds a grudge against his younger brother because of what he did. That he looks down his nose at him. And Samuel is saying, do the exact opposite. I want Israel to be right with God. I want all of you to have the kind of communion with God that I have. Therefore, I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to help you get there. And I think that that's powerful as well. And then the fourth one, and it's kind of a tagline at the end of it there in verse 25. But he says, yeah, remember that uh, if you break my covenant and if you turn away from serving the Lord that you and your king are going to get swept away. And by the way, if you know your Bible history, it turns out that was absolutely true. Not only is half the kingdom lost, and and there's a divided kingdom after King Rehoboam, but even after that, we see the the Jewish captivity with Persia, uh, Babylon, whatever country that was in control of them at the time you want to use. We see that the northern kingdom was taken away by Assyria. And so when Israel refused to do what God asked them to do when they turned away from serving God, they and their king were taken away. And I think that goes along with the overall message of this story, which is, remember that I'm God, I'm really your king, your king is just a steward of the authority that I have imparted to him. 
He's not your ultimate commander. He is not your God. I am your God. And so when he says that, what he is trying to convey to them is that don't think that just because you have a good king that you're going to be in good standing with me because he is. And don't think that your king is going to protect you from other nations. I'm the one that does that. And so if you want to be in good standing with me, you can't do it through your king. You have to go through me. You have to have a right relationship with me in order to do that. And so I think that's a powerful takeaway for that lesson. That ultimately, that's the impression that God wanted to leave them with. That I'm the one, no matter who is on the throne of Israel, that should sit on the throne of your heart. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt, only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.